Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ryan, and uh, one of the pastors on staff here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I look forward to doing so possibly after the service uh, in the back or wherever that might be. But we're glad you're here. If you've been with us at all this summer, you know that we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed, and we come to um, the portion of the Creed that is it's a Trinitarian Creed. Uh, the portion of, this, of the creed that speaks of believing in the Holy Spirit. And so our, our text, if you will, is uh, believing in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And to get at one of the ways and one of the, one of the how we think about the church, uh, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 and 9 to 10. So let's give our attention now to the, pre, or to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for your word and its truth to us, its grace to us. We pray now that as we hear from your word, that you would be gracious to us even more, that you would open our eyes and our ears, uh, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And we pray that you would change our hearts, such as that as good soil, so that as the seed, as the word goes out into that soil and it produces a fruit, that we too uh, would leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. So I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. What does that mean? Well, if that's your question this morning, you're in the right place. We're just going to go right down the line here and look at first the church is holy. Then we'll look at what it means to call the church Catholic and what it means to believe in the communion of saints and what that is. So let's look at that first one. The church is holy. In many ways, this can be the biggest barrier for both Christians and non-Christians alike. For Christians who sit here who are called a chosen people, a holy priesthood, as we just read, which Peter is, is quoting from Exodus, um, there can be a little bit of, well, am I supposed to be acting differently? Because sometimes I don't feel holy. Um, keep having to come talk to Darwin about my sin. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's just the expectations of what you thought it would be like to be a Christian Sometimes that doesn't line up with what you maybe perceive the word holy to mean. And so there's, there's doubt that creeps in. There's confusion. Maybe I'm not working hard enough. And so you continue to, to live under this title, but yet you don't feel like you're living up to the title. That's the Christians in the church. Then there's those outside the church. We'll just call those non-Christians who are looking at the church, the holy church, and are scratching their heads, wondering and thinking, if this is what it means to be holy, I don't know that I want anything to do with that. And maybe you have friends who are like that, and perhaps siblings or parents, I don't know. 
But what does holy mean? And to get at this, we need to go to Scripture, as we always do, and to look at what holy has meant throughout Scripture. And first, what I want you to take away from this first point is to be holy, as the creed states, doesn't mean to be perfect. It doesn't mean to not sin. It simply means set apart by God. That's what the word holy means. The word for the church in the Greek is ecclesia, for for the church is ecclesia, which means literally those who are called out. In the Old Testament, we see God set apart or call out a people for himself. This is Israel. And he does this in Exodus 19. Actually, he does it in Genesis 12, but we'll get there this fall. But he declares it in Exodus 19. And now the church has assumed that role as 1 Peter transfers that, that language to the church. Holiness then, first and foremost, is where we, we have to begin, always starts with something that God is doing in and for his people. Holy, holiness is not something that the church aspires to on its own. It is not a prerequisite for belonging to God. God is the one working behind his church, if you will, calling the people out, setting them apart. In Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decamerian, excuse me, which takes place in the 14th century, we meet a character in this story called Abraham, and he is a medieval Jewish merchant uh, who happens to be close friends with the bishop in Paris, and they're living in Paris. And one day, Abraham tells his friend that he has to go to Rome. Tells his bishop friend that he's got to go to Rome on business. But his friend, the bishop in Paris, uh, who has been trying to convert Abraham, just is terrified about this. Because he, he, he knows how corrupt the bishops and the priests in Rome are. And if you know this age of history, yeah, in the medieval portion of, of that decade, that this is, this is true. And so he's worried to death that if, he, if his friend Abraham goes to Rome on business, he's going to see the church and he's never going to want to become a Christian. He's never going to want to get baptized. But Abraham, being a businessman, he must go. And so he goes to Rome and he comes back. And he comes back and he comes back to meet with his friend, the bishop of, in Paris. And upon returning, he says to his friend, I am ready to be baptized. And at this point, the bishop, his friend, is astonished. Why? What in the world would have convinced you of all places in Rome where the deepest corruption lies within the church itself there? What would that, how would that cause you to want to be baptized and join the church? To which Abraham says, I am a practical businessman. No earthly business that stupid and corrupt could last 14 weeks. Your church has lasted 14 centuries. It must have God behind it. I think we all know the subtle truth to that. And I think we've even talked about it in the past weeks where the fact that the church exists is proof that God is reigning on his throne. But I set that up just to say that God is the one that is always working behind his church. Calling the people out, setting them apart. That's why to be holy first and foremost is to be set apart by God, which always begins with something that he is doing in and for his people. 
God is the one working behind his church. When we hear the word holy, we must first think set apart by God, not set apart by my awesomeness or whatever you would say. This is the first thing. But the second that I want to leave you with with this first point is that the church is holy ultimately because it is united to Jesus. The church is holy because it is united to Jesus Christ. The church belongs to Jesus because Jesus died for her and paid for her with his blood. The places where the church often is the worst in our culture is when she tries to point to herself as to the reason why she is pure and clean and righteous and holy. Instead of pointing to Jesus, the one who makes and has made her clean, perfect, righteous, and holy, we are people who stand not on our own two moral legs, but on the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf, who unites himself to us by faith. And this is why we are, as Peter Kreft writes, his body. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. But he goes so far as to say that this is no metaphor, friends. It is why Paul sees and sees a sin, for example, like sexual infidelity as blasphemous. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The church is his body. We are united to him. And when you are united to someone, you then receive the benefits of that person. Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. And do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united in Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Beautiful words. In other words, all of the benefits of Christ, his holiness included, both are the churches and do become the churches because salvation ultimately is all about being united to Jesus. And in this way, he is the one who makes us holy and why the creed starts out describing the church this way, whether you feel it or not, or whether somebody else experiences that or not. Is the church today a mess? Oh, you don't know half of it, right? Is the church often reflecting anything but holiness and love for neighbor and grace and mercy? Is the church the ultimate work in progress? Yes, yes, and yes. But Jesus, hanging on his cross, bleeding out, dying, says, she may be a mess, but she's my mess. That's what the cross tells us. She's my beloved. She's my bride. And I'm the one who claims her and makes her clean and will make her ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb that is pictured for us in Revelation 19. Look, Jesus loves his church. Why? Often, I don't know. I don't know why. But he does. And that is grace, friends. That is grace. It is grace that has called us, as Peter says, out of darkness and into marvelous light. It is grace that says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's Hosea. Grace is why you are set apart. Grace is why you are united to Jesus through faith. And grace is why you are here this morning. Warts and all, as we tend to say. As the church, the bride of Christ, 
<clears throat> this is the first point. The church is holy, set apart, and united to Jesus. Second, the church is Catholic. As you probably know by now, uh, if you've been or spent any time in the Protestant church, you know that the word Catholic doesn't refer to the, the Roman Catholic church. So we do not say uh, that the church, the one church is a holy Roman Catholic church. We say Catholic, which means universal. And another word for universal is just to say all Christians everywhere. Okay? Ignatius of Antioch is recorded as being the first to use this word when he declared in the second century, quote, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. Meaning that Jesus Christ is the head of the church as well as its Lord. When we confess then to believing in the Catholic or universal church, we acknowledge at the very least two things. One, we acknowledge and are reminded of where our hope, our hope ultimately comes from. Here's what I mean by that. We believe in a visible and an invisible church. And if those terms are unfamiliar to you, let me just define those for a, sec- for a second. The visible church is the institution we see. It is the windows and the brick and mortar and you all sitting here this morning. It is names on membership roles and those who signed up for, to come to VBS. Inside, though, the visible church is something that the church has always referred to as the invisible church. Those whose faith is genuine and who are truly in Christ. Another way to think about this, and you all know this to be true, is not all who sit in a pew on Sunday are Christians, and not all Christians sit in a pew. R.C. Sproul put it this way, The church contains unbelievers, those who worship with their lips while their hearts are far from Christ. And believers as well, those who worship in spirit and truth. We cannot discern whose confession of faith ultimately is authentic. Because the true Christian heart is not perceptible to us, but visible only to God. We speak of then the invisible church. When the creed refers to the holy Catholic church, it is referring to the invisible church. Or the elect of God. And as the Heidelberg Catechism said earlier that we we read, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? That out of the whole human race, from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God, by His Spirit and Word, here it is, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself to everlasting life, a chosen communion in the unity of the true faith. And that I am and forever shall remain a living member of the same. Why is this important? Why why labor here for just a minute? This is where your hope comes from, Christian. We kind of could say that about every single aspect of this creed, which I hope you're kind of seeing that. But this is where your hope comes from, that just as I rely upon God for my holiness, I also rely upon him to what? Gather, defend, and persevere me, preserve me until the end of my life here. That's what we are believing into every time we say this one word, universal. It is God's invisible church whom he has called out, whom he has set apart out of the whole human race from the beginning to the end of the world. And it's why, as we said a couple weeks ago, that there is no certainty or assurance outside of a reigning Jesus Christ. And it's why when we say that he has has sat down and he has closed the loop, that nothing can touch you. Because he is going to gather, defend, and persevere, preserve you until your death. 
This is where your hope comes from. We believe in a visible and invisible church. And my hope that I will stand on the last day comes in nothing of myself, but only in the promise that Jesus truly does have me. And that, friends, is given to us by faith. One of the reasons we confess this is because this is where our hope comes from. But second, believing in a universal church reminds us that I belong to more than just myself. You actually belong to a body of believers bigger than yourself. You belong to a body of believers bigger than your family. You belong to a body of believers bigger than your church, bigger than your home country, bigger than you can even imagine. And where our lives, even here, can easily navigate in and around people of similar tastes, life choices, ethnicities, and backgrounds. It is crucial, crucial to the mission of the church to not only be reminded of our spiritual family, but to believe into the reality that in Christ you belong to a host of people that are both like you and not like you. That speak different languages and look different than you. That have similar life experiences growing up and vastly different life experiences growing up. And those people, friends, are called your brothers and your sisters. This is your new family as a Christian. It is the universal church. In other words, this body of Christ that I am now united to, I am called to know and to love and to identify with because it is the family I am baptized into. It's not just you here. It is Christians everywhere. And if our baptism says anything, it says, I belong to more than just myself. And thank God for that, right? Which is why we should always want in our church locally a diversity that reflects Christ's own universal body. Why? Not because diversity is hip, cool, or trendy, but because in diversity of believers, I actually get to know more of who Christ is. And where that isn't possible, let's go on trips to visit our brothers and sisters throughout this world, like our team is doing in Juarez, like we've gone into several other places. Let's pray for the global church and do all we can to make our local expression here reflect the reality of God's true church everywhere. As best we can. I won't be able to meet all of my brothers and sisters in Christ here who I will spend eternity with this side of heaven. You won't, I won't, it's not possible. But I'll be honest with you, the more that I try, the more that I put myself around the body of Christ that is his church throughout this world, the more I know who Jesus is. The more my faith is strengthened. What we just prayed for the more I am encouraged and probably at least right now, more important, the more the spirit testifies to the reality of his kingdom. When you sing hymns in different languages and see the hope of the gospel expressed, excuse me, in different parts of the world through cultures that are nothing like your own, your cynicism, my cynicism doesn't know what to do with that. It just, it doesn't. It melts away because God's church and his kingdom is so much bigger 
than what I want to make it up to be. This is what's happening, friends, when we go to conferences at the beach or mission trips in our neighborhood or around the world. Yes, we are being helpful and useful sometimes. But it's much bigger and better than just being practical. You are fellowshipping with a different part of the body of Christ that is the church. Think about that. In other words, you are meeting Jesus in new and in fresh ways. And your relationship with him is growing because you are seeing more of who he is. Confessing to a Catholic universal church means that you belong to more than just yourself. And that your hope is found only in the one who what gather defends and perseveres us until the end of our lives here. Well, that's the universal church. Lastly, the communion of saints. When I realize that I belong to more than just myself and that I belong to a spiritual family throughout this world and time, I begin to see that it is crucial for me to carve out life with believers here and now. This is what we are confessing when we confess to believing in the communion of saints. First, saints, by saints, we don't mean people who do not sin anymore. That's not what that means. By saints, we mean simply saved sinners. Peter describes this as living stones or building blocks of a spiritual house that is being built up. And this is the church. The saints are all those who have gone before us who are with us now and who will be with us for all eternity that make up this house. They are, again, saved sinners. There's nothing fancy about being a saint other than you know Jesus, and that's great. Nothing fancy in and of yourself. But to commune with these saved sinners, then, is something different. And what the creed has always testified to, what Scripture has always pointed to in this arena, is that to, to commune with these saints is to share in the life of God together. And how do you do that? The church has always been set up to, to, to share in the life of God together through the means of grace. It's through his preached word. This is why we do this. It's through the table that we'll partake of here in a moment. It's through prayer. It's through the fellowship of believers. When we share in God's life together through these means, we are inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives through the means of grace to shape us, to mold us, to build us up and to make us into this spiritual house, the church that Peter is talking about. But how will this happen? How how am I supposed to share in the life of God with other believers? And that is the beauty of a local church. The thorn in your side this morning. (laughs) That's the beauty of the local church. You cannot share in the life of God together without being a part of a local church. The local church is where the Holy Spirit is applying salvation to our lives, where the Holy Spirit calls for our love and commitment to Christ to land somewhere. The local church is where we will grow unto holiness and assist others in their growing as well. As we partake in the Lord's Supper together, as we hear his word proclaimed, as we pray in fellowship with other believers. Now, this may not be the way that you want to grow spiritually as a Christian, This may not be the way that you want to grow and share in his life with others. But here's the deal. This is the way that God has designed it. And he's designed it this way because he knows that this is the way that may not be the most fun, may not feel the greatest at all times, but it is the best way for you to know him and to grow yourself. 
Look, I understand that the idea of joining or becoming a member of an institution like the church in many ways reeks of all that is inauthentic. Why should I have to publicly declare my loyalty to a certain place and a body of people? But when we say that out loud, what's the cross of Jesus? If not a public declaration of his loyalty to you, to his people. You cannot have one without the other, friends. I will agree, looking at the church often doesn't inspire confidence or even look like a place I'd want to associate with. There are a bunch of weird people in here. Y'all know it. We're all weird. And we look around, we just think, I don't know if I can take another Sunday. It's good, we've got to therapeutically get that out. But we don't join the church, and this is, this is, this is where I'm going to leave this last point. We don't join the church because of the way the bride looks today. To use the metaphor, the living metaphor. We join the church because of the way the groom sees her, clothed in his righteousness. It is Jesus' love for her that changes everything that I think about the local church. It is how we share in God's life together. It is where the true communion of saints begins. It's where it starts. There is way more to be said about what this looks like. Um, Pages and pages were were edited and cut out for time's sake. But this is something where I'd love to see us land down the road to talk more about what this looks like, even for us specifically as a a local church. But as I I round that that out, just a reminder, this is what we see throughout um, these three points. We see the church as holy, Catholic, and we see it as a communion of saints. Here are a few points of application to send us on our way. First, everything in this third section of the creed, as I said, is what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of believers. In other words, the Holy Spirit is applying salvation to us, and everything that we confess in this section of the creed is the fruit of that salvation. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit is truly working, is it truly uh, at work in my life, we should begin to see certain things happening in our lives over time. This is how the creed acts as a roadmap of reality for us. It allows me to come in here and confess this creed and and be forced to, to ask, is this what's showing up in my life? And one of the things, one of the fruits that should be showing up in our life as we recite this creed is that we are, over time, growing in grace. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. Are you growing in grace, for example, as a Christian in the way that you view the church? Are you seeing beauty amongst the broken? Are you finding yourself willing to be more patient with the church? Those in it, because you ultimately see in the church God's own patience with you. This is what we mean by growing in grace It is, as Martin Luther famously stated, Christians are all at the same time righteous and a sinner. No one shows up here on their own two moral feet. (laughs) You are brought here or dragged here sometimes because God loves you. Because God loves you. And in his patience and his kindness to do so, he is working in you to exhibit the same patience and the same kindness towards his church, his bride, that you have received in full from him. Do you see that happening in your life? 
Would you be willing to ask others if they see that happening in your life? Do you see the beauty amongst the broken? Or is everything in here just broken? There is no more beauty. That's one way that we can tell that we're growing in grace with respect to the church. Another way that we can tell if we're growing in grace with respect to the church is as a Christian, are we finding ourselves longing for the full and universal expression of the church today? In other words, are we longing for what Jesus calls his church and not just a church that looks and thinks just like you? And that's a hard one. But the confession guided by scripture is actually saying that a fruit of my salvation will be a growing and longing desire to be in the mix of every nation, tribe, and tongue that comes marching into God's glorious kingdom. Do you love that? And it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no at this point. Do you want to be around that? I'm not interested this morning in objectifying what that should look like in your life to give you some type of grid as to where you should be right now at the age of 38. What I will do is commend to you a prayer that was committed to me that I I pray often, and that is to ask through the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, to continue to grow in me a desire to want to be around and be a part of the full expression of God's universal church. I like me. I like the things I like. I like the way that I dress. I like the, the music that I listen to. I would like to be around a lot of me's. And I suspect at some level you would probably say the same. But the grace of God cares about me more than that, right? How boring would that be? Would you consider praying with me, perhaps the rest of the summer, or maybe into this fall, to wherever you are at this place, to, to give me a longing and desire for God's universal church and to see that expression played out here at Fort Worth Prez in any way that it can. To move me in that direction. To see that fruit come into my life. Remember, believing in the universal church as we confess it is giving our life over to the things that we confess. Again, this has to land somewhere. It has to become real. So, those are just a couple of things. Growing in grace in the way that we view the church, the patience we have with her, but also growing in grace in the way that we want to see and long for the full fullness, the full picture of God's church with every nation, tribe, and tongue. Well, what is going to get us to do that? What's the power behind that? And as I've said already, I'll leave you with this. The power uh, that, that, that has the ability to change your mind about the church wherever you are, whether you're a Christian or not, in this room today. The power that that has the ability to do that is seeing the groom's love and approval of her. In one sense, I would say, stop. If you're having trouble with the church, stop looking at her and turn your eyes to her groom. As a pastor, I do get to do weddings, and it's one of my favorite things to do because a wedding is, there's very few things like it. And... um, Thinking about this it already got me in trouble. Um, one of the things that I've discovered, though, and you've probably heard of pastors talk about this, is that as they do weddings, you know, they've, they've got the best seat in the house there, the right up front. And, um, and, and of course, if you've been to a wedding, you know that the, the moment where you know, the, the grandparents are seated and 
um, the bridesmaids come down, and, and then finally there's quiet, and the, the, the bride's mother stands up, and then everybody, everybody knows what's about to happen, right? The organ, if you have one's hit, the piano goes, whatever the music is, and the doors fling open, and everybody's looking what? The back of the, of the church as this bride comes down the aisle. It's great. What, what, what I have learned to do is at that moment to get just, just a subtle glimpse at the groom. And if you haven't done this, you've got to do this. You know, you'll be the awkward one sort of facing the other way. But nothing prepares anybody for this moment. And, and, and the toughest guys, without a doubt, are always the ones that just break down, start sobbing, you know, lips quivering, the whole thing. You know, sometimes even in moments where there's just a, a, a utter meltdown, where there's just ugly crying going on, and, and you've got to kind of step in there and, Hey, can you, we're not even done with this yet. Like, you've got to hang in there with me. Um, usually, usually they're telling me that because I'm already a mess by the time they get down, to, by the time the bride makes it down there. But um, over the years, though, to doing these weddings, that has been the place that I've discovered what it truly, what truly gives me the power and the ability to love God's church. And this is why. I love seeing what is possibly the the closest picture of what Jesus will look like and how he responds when he will see his bride come down that aisle at the end of time. Lips quivering, eyes full of tears, because he is so enamored with her and so approved of her. He loves her, right? Do you believe that Jesus is going to ugly cry over you? Like that, that is your grace as we leave here. But the more that you stare at that, the more that you look at that, right? The more you begin to fall in love with what he has fallen in love with. The more you begin to see, I, I can sit here a little longer. I can be more, I can learn more about what this place is by looking at Jesus and understanding who he is, why he loves the church, why he died for her. That's our goal. That's our job as Christians. That's your job as a non-Christian. I would encourage you, stop looking at me. (laughs) Look at Jesus. Look at what he is doing, what he has done, and what he will look like on that day of days when he looks at his bride of all eternity, the church, dressed in his robes of righteousness coming down this aisle. It'll be nothing of ourselves. It'll be everything of the work of Jesus on her behalf. Jesus loves his church. Would his love for her then, at the very least, make us curious and to long to imagine what it would be like to be the object of such affection? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love that you love your church. We don't know why. Our best guess is to just look at the question that Israel asked. Why, why us? Why did you choose us? And the only answer they got back was, because I love you. Would that somehow be enough for us? Would we be willing and daring enough to open ourselves up to a love like that? And would we begin to do that, perhaps at the next wedding we attend, by taking a glimpse, taking a chance to see what it, what it just might look like For Jesus to smile at his bride, to be pleased with her, to love her. 
Would you do this for your glory, we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.